Blog Talk Radio. Happy holiday season to everyone, and welcome to the Pet Place Radio Show. I'm Marie Hewitt, and as always, I am truly pleased that you've tuned in this morning. Today, I'll be joined by marine biologist John Hosevar, who with Greenpeace is working hard to put an end to whaling. It's a sad and hideous practice that continues in many parts of the world and will only end if we as animal lovers make our voices heard on behalf of these amazing animals. Later in the show, Marianne Dell will be doing her part to help you with last-minute holiday shopping as she reviews a number of wonderful new pet-related books that will make fabulous gifts. So don't touch that dial. Gripping Animal Talk is coming right up. Here in the Pet Place Radio Show on Retro 1260. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Place Radio Show on Retro 1260. I'm Marie Hewitt, and here with me now is marine biologist John Hosevar from Greenpeace. Welcome to the Pet Place, John. Thanks, Marie. Now, I understand you've been involved in something that's really important in my book and a lot of our Pet Place listeners, and that is helping the whales that are in danger out in the area of Japan. Greenpeace has been working to save the whales for, uh, unfortunately, a long time. We don't like to have taken care of that by now, but we we have had some pretty significant victories. Um, The most important was the moratorium on commercial whaling that was agreed to internationally. But unfortunately, when was that moratorium put into effect? That was in the late 80s. And and yet there's still whaling for food? That's right. The Japanese government and also Norway and Iceland are still whaling, even though uh, Japan is calling it research whaling. They're, as you said, they're, they're killing whales and selling them in uh, restaurants. I don't understand how that's possible. If... if if they're selling it for restaurant food, how can they call that research? Are they trying to decide what sauce works best? <laughs> I think that might be it. You might be onto something there. You're not the only one that's baffled by how they can call it research. I mean, the International Whaling Commission has passed, I believe, over 20 resolutions now calling it to abandon this so-called research whaling, saying that it's it's not necessary. You know, non-lethal research will teach us a lot more than killing them. What do they say or claim they're actually researching? That's the interesting part, is they will admit freely that the main objective to the research whaling program is to uh, learn enough about whale populations that they will be able to justify uh, bringing back large-scale commercial whaling. No way. Yeah, it's really something. How how do the Japanese people in general feel about whaling? I mean, everybody knows now, at least I would think they would know, that, that whales are highly, highly intelligent and social. I mean, how could they even consider doing what they're doing? It's interesting. Attitudes in Japan have really changed a lot over the past few decades. It was really just after World War II that Japanese people ate a lot of whale meat. Um, you know, partly it was a poverty measure. Mm-hmm. But 
since then, it, it's really declined in popularity in Japan. Uh, you know, there's very little interest in whale meat, especially under young people, among young people. Are young people, do they tend to be, um, in Japan, do they tend to be more activist-oriented and are trying to put a stop to this? There isn't an enormous amount of opposition uh, you know, among young activists, but at the same time, there isn't a whole lot of support for whaling either. And there's probably even less than there seems to be because what we have seen from polling is that most Japanese people believe that whaling is is happening right off their shores, mm-hmm. but in fact it's happening thousands of miles away off of the coast of Antarctica. Oh no, I didn't realize that either. Yeah, so it's you know it's very far from the kind of indigenous or coastal whaling that you might imagine some people thinking was sustainable. This is really this is really something else. It's giant factory vessels going thousands of miles to you know, some of the most pristine habitats on Earth and killing every whale they see. How many whales are we talking about? Their quota this year is 935 minke whales and 50 fin whales. Uh, They also are saying that they could kill humpbacks, but they're not going to. Oh, gee, how generous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who's actually keeping track of the whale count? I mean, I have a feeling that it's probably going over that amount. It is a concern, because, uh, of course, it's the, the Japanese Fisheries Agency of Japan that's keeping track of their own catch. And, in fact, they have been busted for vastly underreporting catches in other areas, particularly in tuna. Oh, wow. Now, this has been a serious problem that a lot of people have been aware of for a long, long time. In fact, uh, going way back in the Star Trek movies, they have been talked about whaling and and how we had wiped out the whales and we had to bring them back by going back to the past and bringing them to the future. Is is there just none of that common knowledge in Japan and some of the other countries that are still participating in whaling? I mean, is there any kind of sentiment at all that is anti-whaling, not just, um, you know, apathetic, but just full-on anti-whaling? Norway and Iceland, there's much more concern from, say, the tourist sector, where they realize that it's doing their country's reputation some real damage to continue to be engaged in commercial whaling, even though it's so unpopular internationally. Um, and the whalers in those countries, you know, they really seem to believe that they're doing it in a sustainable way. With Japan, I get more the sense that, you know, they just feel like they're entitled to catch or kill anything that they can in the ocean, and that's maybe starting to change a little bit. We're hearing some positive signs from uh, Japanese fishery representatives, but it's, you know, we have a long way to go there, I think. As a marine biologist, um, is, is it pretty evident that a lot of our uh, ocean life, not just the whales, are, are getting incredibly damage their populations due to commercial fishing? I wish I had better answer for you, but unfortunately it, it's pretty bad news. I mean, the, the scientists are estimating that we have now removed over 90% of the large fish from the oceans. Wow. Um, you know, we, we're basically fishing with ocean liners out there, massive vessels, and using fish-finding gear that was 
developed for the military. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really no place left for fish to hide. So we're radically changing the, our oceans on a, on a daily basis. And, and that ultimately affects the entire ecosystem, not just in the ocean, but on land too, right? That's right. Every sec- the oxygen from every second or third breath we take is generated by the ocean. I mean, if we don't treat the oceans right, it's, we, we are going to be affected. So and everything has an impact. That's right. And especially for people who live close to the ocean. I mean, there, there are many, especially island states or uh, you know, coastal communities in remote areas where if, if they lose the fish, they really don't have anything as a backup. Now, I understand from what I've read that whaling isn't even profitable, is it? No, it doesn't seem like it is. Uh, It's heavily subsidized by the Japanese government. And the good news is that that's probably the most hopeful thing we have in the short term. The Japanese government now is on a big anti-corruption push, and they're reviewing all the uh, subsidies, and it may well be that probably not for 2010, but for 2011, they may decide that uh, it's just not reasonable to continue to dump so much money into something that very few people are interested in. Sure, especially when they could be using that money to help the people of Japan. Absolutely. Yeah, and and whaling is not helping the people of Japan at all. (laughs) That's right. Now, I understand you've been out on a few boats yourself. Do you have any experiences that you'd like to share with us? what it's like out there? The most recent experience for me was this summer working um, in the southern Mediterranean off the coast of Tunisia and Libya and off of Sicily. And we were patrolling for illegal fishing operations, mostly um, for bluefin tuna, which is critically endangered. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting. I mean, you approach one of these boats and they could be speaking any of you know 10 or 12 languages uh, but we always managed to communicate what we were there for and, and find out what we needed to know, except this one time where we approached a Spanish vessel in port in Malta, and uh, they reacted very badly and uh, were incredibly violent to uh, our activists when they attempted to board to investigate. Oh, wow. Um, but as it happened, we were able to connect that boat to... Uh, some pretty shady operations with uh, illegal fishing and, and uh, for bluefin tuna. And then what happens from there? Uh, do government um, organizations get involved at that point? It's um, actually what we'll find out in March is whether governments agree to an international ban on trade in bluefin tuna. The Unfortunately, it it got to a terrible point before they decided to act, but this would be the best hope for the survival of the species, I think, finally. So you're helping all the the animals who live out in the sea, and and that's quite amazing. And I know that you need a lot of support from regular folks, too, so how would you encourage people to get involved? Well, thank you. Yes, we don't uh, accept money from governments or corporations, so it's individual people that uh, allow us to do what we do. And people can donate online or or get involved in other ways. We'd love to have their help in any way they can. Um, And our website is www.greenpeace.org.
Okay, and you have all the different programs that you're involved with on your website? That's right. You can read more about what we're doing to end whaling, to uh, protect the oceans through creating marine reserves, um, working to stop global warming, and to protect forests and uh, deal with toxics and, and nukes. It's a wonderful organization, and, and John, I'm so glad you're able to spend some time with us this morning. Well, thanks. It was good to talk to you. I wish you all the best in your endeavors, and I hope you'll keep us posted on all the progress. I look forward to it. It's time now for our halftime break, but when we return, Marianne Dell will be here to share her latest animal-related book reviews. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a little bit right here on Retro 1260. You're listening to the Pet Place Radio Show. I'm Marie Hewlett, and here with me now is our very own Marianne Dill. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Hi Marie. The holidays. All set. We're ready to go. And we got some good books here I think we can have if people are looking for some last-minute gifts. Yay. Or one I'd like to suggest if people are maybe thinking about getting a puppy uh-huh. for the holidays, that maybe they might want to put that off just a little bit. We always like to tell folks, so much craziness going on at the holidays, it's not really the optimum time to bring a new animal into the house. Right. Wait until agree on it. Maybe get the kids a stuffed animal for now mm-hmm. and let them know that once things settle down after the holidays, then we can bring the new pet home. Absolutely. That's great advice. Yes. So are we ready to go? Ready to go. Okay. Well, the first book is called Finding My Molly. It's written and illustrated by Peggy Krause. Published by Author House, it's eight ninety five. And it's for ages 8 to 11. This is a chapter book. It's a little longer. Okay. And it's about Soupy the cat. And let me tell you, this is one lucky cat. He lives with his best friend, Molly, who's a messy little girl. But Soupy thinks she's the most beautiful person in the world. And the story is told from Soupy's perspective. And it's, it's just it's a nice little story. Soupy is an indoor cat who gets out one day when the door is left open. Ooh. Yes. Molly's mm, kind of a pain brother leaves the door open, and Soupy decides to explore and go a little farther and a little farther, and before he knows it, he's lost. Oh, no. And the story is about what happens to Soupy during his several-week quest to return to his Molly and find her again. And it talks about unconditional love, the unconditional love that animals have for people, that people have for animals how that relationship builds that we have with each other. And it's got just a couple really neat little things in it, like one time Soupy's talking about being lost, and he says the one bad thing about loving someone so much is that when they're gone, it feels like your heart weighs a 1,000 pounds. Yeah. And don't we feel that way if we ever lose one of our pets? You know, I think a lot of people can relate to that. I lost a pet when I was a little girl, and she was gone for, gosh, about a month. She was a kitty. And my parents said, well, she's probably not coming home. And then one day I heard little meows coming from outside, and I rushed to the door, and she's back. I was so excited. That's (laughs) definitely one that people can relate to with this. I will tell you the ending is not sad. So it's a a nice book with a a lot of good messages about how important animals can be in our lives. Definitely. And then this next book, it's just cute. It's called Three Stories You Can Read to Your Dog by Sarah Swan Miller, <laughs> illustrated by True Kelly, published by Houghton Mifflin, 595 for ages 5 to 9. 
And as the book says, you can read these stories to yourself, but it's a lot more fun if you read them to your dog. And they're written to the dog, so they talk to you <laughs> as you being the dog. And I think kids will get a kick out of them. They're cute. One of them talks about a giant bone tree uh-huh. that grows when the dog buries his bone in the yard. <laughs> and another one is about a wild dog who runs away and decides to become a wolf and realizes it's hard work being a wolf. There's sure. no cans of dog food in the forest. No blankies either. That's right. None of that good stuff. But the thing I just love, and I think dog owners will just love, is every book ends the same way. And then you went home and you took a nap. And what do our dogs like to do? <laughs> exactly that. That's right. That, I'm sure that's where Cody is right now, sleeping. Yes, I'm sure my four are all curled up at home going, oh, the sun's out today, yay. <laughs> and hey. she... Let me ask you a quick question. I know you do a lot of uh, work with kids with your dog in therapy. Is this a book that you're going to be taking for the the read program? This would be an excellent book for the read program. And they can read to your therapy dog. And they can read to my dogs. Yes. (laughs) There's also another one, more stories you can read to your dog, and there's three stories you can read to your cat, too. Oh, great. All would be excellent. (laughs) That's a great suggestion. They'd all be great for therapy work. Yes. This next one, I just love this book. It's called Be a Dog's Best Friend by Renee Payne and Jennifer Gladys, and it's illustrated by Keith Gladys. It's $9.95, publisher is Doggy Couch Books, and this is really for everyone. Oh, good. Renee Payne is a certified professional dog trainer, mm-hmm. so she knows what she's talking about. And um, Jennifer Gladys owns a dog walking company, and they're both from Brooklyn, and so they have some experience, a lot of experience working with dogs. So they know what they're talking about. They know what they're talking about, and they talk the right talk. That's what I really like. Okay. Um, the book is written for children, but there's an introduction and a conclusion for adults. And the introduction talks about one of one of the problems that we have in this country, an awful lot of the victims of dog bites are children. Mm, that's and true. And they tend to get bitten around the head and the neck because they put their faces right down by dogs. You know, they love stuffed animals. They might have their own pet at home that's very friendly, that loves them, and that they can do that with. And they see a strange dog, and a little four- or five-year-old child really doesn't know any better. They just will go running up to the strange dog, thinking they can give it a big hug and a kiss like they do Fluffy at home. Right. And the onus is on parents to educate their children. And that's what this book says. You need to start doing it when you're young. And it uses illustrations of a little girl named Emma, who's probably about seven or eight, and various dogs, different, all kinds of different breeds of dogs. And Emma tells readers about how to approach a strange dog, why you shouldn't just approach a strange dog without asking permission of an adult, right. why you should stay calm, why you shouldn't yell and scream and run and flap your arms around all the time. Um, The illustrations are really dead on. I mean, showing a happy dog, a dog that's not too happy, uh, a dog that's getting ready to aggress, and the little girl says, would you want to approach someone if they look like this? Think about it. (laughs) And older kids, you know, can read it themselves and get a lot of education out of it. Younger younger kids can have it read to them by their parents. Okay. And this is the one I think, if you're thinking about getting a dog, this is one of those books that it would be good for the whole family to get. Oh, definitely. I think there's a lot of adults who don't even know that. I can't tell you how many times I would walk dogs in the shelter who were questionable as far as how they Mm -hmm. behave with strangers, and adults would come right up and try and pet it. Yeah. 
it's it's so funny. My little therapy dog, Jitterbug, has an underbite, and she has a snaggle tooth that sticks out on one side <laughs> of her mouth. And it's very cute. And it is very cute. But it's interesting to me how many people see her, and the first thing they ask is, is she growling at me? Is she mad? Because you can see her teeth. Right. And people equate seeing a dog's tooth with a dog being angry. They don't realize that there's a whole package of dog behavior that's wrapped up in the body and everything the body's doing and sure. you have to they're ignoring the fact that her ears she's totally relaxed and mm-hmm. she's and her ears are forward and loose and her tail's wagging like crazy and her little body is wiggling but ooh there's that tooth mm-hmm. and it's nobody's fault they just aren't educated right and so a book like this is a great place for somebody to start who now, really does it know. also mention how you shouldn't walk up to a friendly dog too because sometimes a friendly dog will jump up on you and if you're a little small child, you're going to get knocked over. Yes. It talks about how you should never walk up to a dog you don't like without asking permission of the person with the dog and preferably involving an adult in the interaction. I I think it's just great, and it's a quick little book. You know, it's not very big. It's a little paperback. There's a couple of, of... gems out there like this, and I'm just always thrilled when I can find them, so I was really glad I found them. And you do find them. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how they come to me somehow. (laughs) Do you have any others for us? I do. Um, These last two, not so much gems, and I, I I was, you know, enthusiastic when I saw them. They're called How to Talk to Your Dog and How to Talk to Your Cat by Jean Craighead George, illustrated by Sue Truesdell. $6.99 $6.99 each from Harper Trophy, and they're for ages 6 to 9. I don't know as much about cat behavior as I do about dog behavior, um, but I read the cat book first, and it, these two books seem to be based a little bit in where we were with behavior 15, 20 years ago. Okay. The dog book is full of ways to make your dog understand that you're the boss, mm-hmm. and that's the old basis in the dominance alpha theory of interacting with dogs, which we've come to realize in the behavior training community that it's it's for a lot of reasons a lot more humane, a lot more logical, and a lot more realistic to look at the relationship as a partnership. Mm-hmm. And while you need to be the leader and help your dog understand what the rules are and set them, there are very much more benign positive ways to do it by controlling resources. Okay. And some of the things she suggests actually scare me a little bit. One of the ways she suggests you show your dog you're the boss is to put your muzzle on his muzzle. Which to As me, in your mouth? Uh-huh. Which to me seems like really? a really good way to get yourself oh, bitten. Man. <laughs> Particularly if you've just adopted a three-year-old dog from a shelter and you don't know very much about his behavior. Okay, so these are books you don't want to get. Yeah, I would say so. There's a few, you know, there's a few things that are fine. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I don't know as much about cat behavior as I uh-huh. do about dog behavior. She says that when your cat rubs you with its head, it's saying hi, which I believe is true mm-hmm. for cats. Um but, again, the stuff in the dog book just makes me say, oh, I probably don't trust the cat book either then. Okay, I know, okay. You know, there's, some, there's some funny. Turn your back on your dog when you're leaving to show him your boss. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one of my favorites is, and, again, this is some of the old school stuff that you can still see on TV in certain places. Never lay on your back in your dog's presence because that will tell your dog that you're subservient to him. And I just read that and I thought, gee, I wonder what my dogs think every night when they're lying in bed with me, <laughs> sleeping on my back. 
they still know I'm the one that controls the food. Sure. So it's a good thing to, you know, let me do whatever I want. I really don't think they think they're getting one over on me because I do that. <laughs> so little, a little old-fashioned, a little out of date. Okay. You know. Well, you know, you usually have books that you highly recommend, and it's good that you come across some every now and then because that will let people know, uh-huh. okay, this is the one I probably should pass up, and I'll get yep. one of these other three instead. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> get, be a dog's best friend. Okay. That's a wonderful <laughs> Now, before I let you go, can you believe this is our fourth holiday season with the Pet Place Radio Show? Oh, my goodness. It's yeah. gone so fast. Time is flying. Really and I think is. your book reviews are especially fun, especially around this time of year, because I suspect a lot of people are really trying to figure out what to get that's not the same old, same old. I'm sure. So thanks again for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you're running right out of here to do a training session. Yeah, there we go. So <laughs> enjoy that. And Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always fun when I can get here in person. Yeah, it sure yeah. is. Well, it's time now for our last break of the morning, but don't go away because when we return, it will be time for Pet Place news and events coming right up on Retro 1260. We're back on the Pet Place Radio Show. I'm Marie Hewlett, and it's time for Pet Place News and Events. I'd like to remind everyone that pet safety is extremely important during the holidays. A lot of people will be coming and going, so please make sure no one leaves the door open, which would allow for your four-legged family members to run outside and get lost or hurt. Also, careful with tinsel and electric lines of light. Pets will chew on everything and anything, and these items can be deadly. Don't feed your pets chocolate. It's toxic to them. And keep in mind that holiday foods are far too rich for your pet's digestive systems and can make them very sick. Get them some pet treats that are designed for animals, but more than that, give them a little extra time and affection. We all get busy during this season, but we need to remember our furry friends who have given us their loyalty and love throughout the year. And if you'll be bringing a new pet home for the holidays, make sure you'll be providing a permanent home. Pets are not toys. They require a commitment that will last for their whole life. If you're not prepared to make that commitment, then please don't adopt a pet. It's not fair to anyone. Well, that's all for me today. Remember, pets need love and a home, too. And from all of us at the Pet Place and Retro 1260, happy holidays. I'm Marie Hewlett. Please spay or neuter your pets and have a wonderful day. 